Welcome to the Hotel Analyst podcast. Uh, my name is Chris Bound, the editor at Hotel Analyst, and I'm joined by a, a positive gang this week. So I've got uh, Andrew Sankster, the editor or director of Hotel Analyst, and we have Macy Marvel with us, who's an associate at Hotel Analyst too. And they're going to be grilling Stephen McCall, the CEO of uh, the Extended Stay Group Eden. Uh, they've been working together on a report, uh, which uh, Andrew may want to tell a little bit more about. Um, the other reason for talking to Stephen is, of course, because the extended stay sector has has fared much better than most through the COVID-19 downturn. So uh, without more ado, over to Andrew. Thanks very much, Chris. Yes, so that report is the post-COVID deal climate. Um, it's looking at uh, the major EU countries and will be available shortly. So watch this space. We'll, we'll let you know more about it uh, as as it hits the, um, um, well, I don't know if it's the presses, but um, what's, a, what's the electronic equivalent of presses, Chris? The pixel, <laughs> when, it, when it becomes pixel time, I think. Um, but but Stephen, w- welcome to the podcast. R- really, I, I think what we'd we'd like to talk about and focus mostly on, as, as well as the uh, the resilience aspects of um, of uh, extended stay, I'm, I'm sure you're very happy to talk about that. But I'd also like to get a sense of, um, about what's going on in the market right now, in particular the deal climate, because you guys are well funded. You have Brookfield as backers. You're in acquisition mode, so you're keeping a weather eye on what's happening. Um, where are we at in terms of deals right now? Um, well, that's the question. <laughs> that's the question, isn't it? I mean, I guess it's pretty much all we've been talking about um, for the last, well, I suppose since lockdown started, since this pandemic raised its ugly head. Um, I mean, for most people, including us, it's pretty much been pens down, you know, through through spring and then into summer. Um, and, you know, a sort of extensive and probably quite unhelpful round of speculation from everybody. Um, and if there's one thing that I've learned, it's that nobody's got the answer to this. So you're trying to forecast um, an unprecedented event, and that's a horrible cliche. I swore I'd never use it, so I'm sorry <laughs> for that. But um, unprecedented it is, um, is kind of uh, fraught with danger and really not very useful. I mean, having said that, things have improved recently and, um, you know, to characterise the deal climate as improving um, is is probably the right way to describe it. It's certainly not where it was before, but, you know, unless we very much read the fundamentals wrong, then I think things are going to get very interesting over the next six months um, mm-hmm. if you've got the financial firepower to deal with it. Uh, uh, earlier th- uh, this week, I attended um, the Dubai Arabian Hotel Investment Conference. Sadly, from from this room I'm speaking at now, rather than actually in Dubai, um, and the consensus there seemed to be it was going to be Q1 when um, after, just after Q1 when things began to get a little bit more interesting in terms of deal flow. And that seems to be your your perspective too. Yeah, we we sort of called. Uh in the middle of the summer we said sort of q4 this year q1 next year might be when you would start to see um deals coming to market uh and actually we we thought we would see distressed assets sooner than that given the you know extreme pressure uh, on traditional hospitality models um you know for a whole variety of reasons that's not really happened yet and i think um everyone's still holding their breath because 
you know, th there are some unusual market forces at play, particularly government intervention, furlough schemes, uh, loan forgiveness, or at least loosening of covenants, bank forbearance, and um, and you know, I think I think all of those things have propped up a market which left its own devices would be in a very different condition just now. So, um, you can say Q four Q one. But, but really, some of those some of those um, artificial market forces have to change for the situation to really develop. I think, mm. and it's, it's interesting. I, I've been very sort of split on which way we're going to head. Um, is it the nineteen nineties where we did see very significant discounting, um, or is it going to be a repeat of the post GFC global financial crisis situation where um, really it was just extend and pretend for the for a decade really there very little um, um, discounting went on um, there. Um, uh, and initially I thought oh gosh this is going to be much more like uh, because of the severity of the hit. I mean, you know we've talked on this podcast in the past about just how serious a hit this is it's sort of five times worse than the gfc um five you know five or six times worse than it was post 9 11 in terms of the hit to trading if you look look at aggregate numbers across the industry is so severe it's you, you know you, that dreadful word unprecedented you know we, you just don't factor in having to shut down hotels for three months i know you you guys didn't for many of your properties you kept them trading which is a point we'll come on to in a moment but sticking with this issue in terms of the the, the nature of these forces but uh, you've got this huge gap now in in balance sheets which have to be rebuilt and it's a question of how they're going to be rebuilt and what who and what steps in to do that now you're sitting there on a pile of cash wanting to step in but there's and i look around i can see lots of people like you on big big piles of cash and i just wonder whether though there's, there's so many piles of cash whether that's going to keep asset prices up what's what's your sense of where it's going to drop uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's the crux of the issue, right? I mean, look at simplistically in its surface level, anyone would argue that we are entering, you know, the buying opportunity of a lifetime, right? Um, but, you know, if you dig a little bit deeper, there is a lot of money chasing what's still relatively few deals. And that for sure right now is still holding prices up. And we haven't seen yet a flood of assets to spread that money around. So the, the distressed asset that everyone's expecting as I said earlier, you know they haven't really come to market yet, um, and so so in many senses, it's not really like GFC or you know or recent corrections because there are some fundamental forces at play that are you know that that are not you know are not easy to predict and that haven't really played out yet. I mean, I think until governments and institutions take a less active role in the markets they're operating in and in the wider economy because some of this is macroeconomic mm. i don't really think any of us are going to truly understand the impact on the deal environment or even i suppose in the industry you know more widely um and i'm really i'm not sure at this stage where the central banks or governments have really got the political will to remove some of that support that's been propping up you know many sectors not just hospitality and has also kind of masked how serious the situation is i mean we all understand the threat to employment levels but but really that hasn't washed through because of furlough schemes and a variety of other things so you know i think you can look at all that and it confuses the situation but if you bake it back down to fundamentals the fundamentals of supply and demand and what is still quite a highly leveraged sector it's really matter for me it's a matter of 
really when rather than if. And as you said, there is a great deal of money that needs to find a home. It's not really optional. Um, and there will be a lot of assets that um, really are not um, are not going to be trading in the way that they have in the past into the future because of the you know the profound changes in the way the industry works. Um, so we're not really seeing a blip that will climb back up again. Everyone talks about a U-shape or V-shape recovery. This is a, a real change in the, in the sort of landscape of hospitality and, and a bunch of other asset classes as well, I think. Macy, um, just to bring you in, um, just to ask, um, when you were looking um, at the, the, the numbers for the report you pulled out, was there anything that really struck you that brought home just how serious this is um, in terms of the trading impact? Yeah, um, well, I think, I, I think the uh, hot stats numbers, uh, when you looked at the year-on-year numbers in May and June, uh, I mean, that, and, and you already, I think, referred to that, you know, when when uh, Gopar was down, you know, over 100% year on year, this kind of thing. I, I think that's that's the, probably the best illustration of the pain uh, in the sector. And, and in terms of the the, the pools of money that that are out there, um, yeah, well, the, that, they, they've never been bigger, have they? Yeah, that. That's a bit difficult to gauge. I mean, uh, I had the testimony of, of uh, several of the consultants that just said the phone is ringing off the hook. I mean, this was already back in the mid-spring, you know, in April and so on. Uh, the phone was ringing on the hook with people that, you know, of course, PE investors and this kind of profile who, who, were, who were looking for um, cheap assets. <laughs> uh, so, not, not good so news yeah, for you, I mean, for you Stephen, I guess. And uh, I guess they're still looking now and and um, holding their breath. It, during the um, the period where most hotels were closed, you kept were all of your properties open, or did you shut any? Across our two brands, across Seiko and Lock, we had seventy percent of our rooms open throughout lockdown. Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you, we did that originally primarily because we felt we had an opportunity to give something back to the communities in which we're situated. And a large part of that is our business model. So we can tolerate far lower uh, rev pars than a traditional hotel because our margins are a lot higher because of the way that we run the business. Um, and so we felt that we could keep our, our rooms open largely for key workers and for those you know, who needed a permanent home um, throughout that period. And as much as anything else, we were looking at this as, as a responsible business rather than as a sort of addition to our, our fiscal profile. Right. As it happened, all, all of those rooms and the units in which they were situated cleared their marginal costs and more during that period. And in fact, uh, Seiko particularly, which is our pure service department model, um, performed way beyond our expectations um, and, and really caused us to take a long hard look at our plans for that business and the resilience of the service department sector it's not just extended today but particularly in pure service departments there there was an opportunity there that we hadn't necessarily dug into before and you know the ability to pivot into different revenue sectors um, and so for Seiko that meant a lot more leisure business for us we were predominantly not not entirely but predominantly b2b before that um, gave us, you know, far higher occupancies than we'd expected. And, you know, if I, if, you know, if I look at September, we're looking at occupancies close on 80% across both brands, which is, you know, pretty stunning. I mean, the rates for sure are not what we would like them to be, but nevertheless, th there is demand there if your model is flexible enough to attract it. 
and if your you know your operating um, model is um, is is lean enough to deliver a profit. See, Steve, can I, can I just ask you something? Uh, I, 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 going back to what you just said re- regarding performance and staying open, were you mainly speaking about the UK, or or uh, could you elaborate on some of the other markets uh, where I guess Seiko is present? Yeah, pr- predominantly UK. We have operations in um, in Amsterdam as well. That's kind of a, a longer stay business there. Anyway, that held up very well. Um, mo- most of our Western, in fact, all of our other Western European operations are all in development mode, so under construction just now. So yeah, so I'm really talking about the UK. Um, I, I, my, my sense is you see the same dynamic being played out across the more mature markets uh, in, in Western Europe, particularly in Germany. Um, so I, th- I, think the, I think the opportunity holds true. Um, but for us, it was a real test of, um, of how what is still a relatively nascent kind of sector performs in times of extreme stress, right? And for, for the valuation of any platform, the prospects of any business, that's great news for investors because you need to be able to demonstrate, you know, good performance in the worst of times and it doesn't get any worse than the last few months. Because in the UK, I mean, the ho- hotels were were ordered by the state to close, right? So you had to basically have a special permission to be open. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, again, yeah, we're not traditional... Uh, key workers because in most of the other uh, countries in Europe um, they were not uh, hotels were not obliged to close by the state most closed for economic reasons yeah that's correct I mean we we, we only we only really took in key workers and those who were passing through the business or trapped in the country if you like um, but yeah I mean I, th- I think um, there was certainly a point when we felt it would have been simpler by far just to close the business down. But for the reasons I mentioned earlier on, we didn't think that was the right thing to do. And, you know, we, we, we felt we provided a really valuable service to the community. And, you know, and an attractive side effect to that was that we managed to clear some revenue during that period as well. So, you know, it's worth remembering that apart hotels are not classified as, as traditional hotels in the UK and so weren't covered by that guidance. But, um, yeah, I think in, in Western Europe, full service hotels as a competitive force um, mostly closed simply because they couldn't continue to operate in any recognizable form with rev pars that far below um, their sort of break-even point. So that was a purely fiscal decision. And there was also um, a lot of talk of in terms of a pivot um, by some uh, platforms, if you look at Airbnb, towards moving into the longer let market. Is that something you've considered as well in terms of extending it for those longer lets or r- really are you, you is your length of stay pretty much where it was? Uh, well, no, for obvious reasons, you know, during that kind of lockdown period, our length of stay was far higher because we were kind of looking after people for the long term. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the, the wider dynamic at play here is a kind of blurring between um, traditional segments, right? Um, so if you're a traditional hotel, full service or otherwise, your rooms are hardwired and configured for a transient guest and so you can only really attract that type of a guest one of the advantages of apartment rooms is that you can you can sell them to long-stay guests but you can also take advantage of transient demand 
when it makes sense because a short stay guest will be just as happy if not happier in an apartment for a night um, as they would in a transient room so uh, the, 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 jo the, the joy of the model really is it's, it's, it's far more flexible and, and you can pivot to a wider field and that's one of the reasons not the only reason there's several but it's one of the reasons why the sector has been so resilient um, and even when you look at sort of quasi um, um, AST, if you like, or at least what we would call long, long stay, um, you know, as the as the sector matures, that's going to be a much more viable option for many people, I think. Actually, Steve, I, I'd be interested to know uh, how did the average length of stay evolve, let's say, uh, st starting with a lockdown period uh, and going forward compared to what, what went on before? So, I mean, it all depends on the property you're talking about. So, so our sweet spot's really seven to 28 days. That's the kind of profile of business that delivers, you know, really well for us in the bottom line and that minimizes distribution costs and all the other associated um, uh, channel dynamics. But I think, um, I think at the beginning, certainly in lockdown, again, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, you know, we were looking at one to two months for a lot of people. That will shorten again um, on average um, the more the sort of traditional business flows return, whenever that's going to be. But right now we're still seeing, um, you know, relatively long stay characterized by, you know, periods of transient leisure demand, which is not business that we always take largely because of where it comes from, the distribution path. But, um, but you know, when you are in a situation that we're all facing just now, you really have to balance the business um, in a much more creative way across as many revenue segments as you can manage when demand is as light as it is. So, um, but you know, the core of our business and you know, the real profitability driver for the model is that sort of seven to 28 yep. day period. Do you, do you see other hospitality assets pivoting towards your sort of model? I mean, you, you've got a background with IHG. You, you know that business very well. And they were one of the pioneers with extended stay with Staybridge in the UK. Do, do you see, uh, are you hearing now that there's a lot of others looking at this market wanting to come back in in a hurry? Uh, yeah, yes, is the short answer to that. We are. I mean, I think... Um, if you were going to start up fresh in the hospitality sector as an investor, you would need to seriously ask yourself why this wouldn't be your first choice. And the only reason for that is that the set, one of the reasons we've worked with you guys on, on, on some reporting is that the sector is still sort of criminally under-recognized. Um, and I think that that's something that will will change over time and hopefully you know, lockdown and this pandemic has been one of the one of the few upsides of it has been an opportunity to shine a light on a on a sector of hospitality that's kind of a little bit disregarded. Um, but but I think um, you know the, the big brand players already usually have extended stay in their stable, um, but it's a small part of their system size and they simply can't disregard the rest. So so they may decide to try and put a little bit of focus in that area of growth, but you know, it takes quite a long time to bring these assets to fruition. So there's definitely going to be an undersupply versus what we perceive as increased demand, you know, over the next two to three years, probably a little bit longer than that. I think the situation, I'm not, I'm not as up to speed in the US, 
But I think the situation's different there. Extended stays are far more widespread and better understood set. Yeah, it's a very mature market in the US. I mean, yeah, it's very well segmented too between sort of upper mid-scale, mid-scale and economy. I, I was involved, I guess, way back in the day when Staybridge first came to the UK, uh, Newcastle, I think it was. And we did a lot of work at that time on what drives extended stay in the US. And a lot of it is project business and the geography of Europe doesn't lend itself to that. You don't have these large distances within one jurisdiction that would, you know, would lend people to look for service departments for a Monday to Friday stay. So at that point, didn't seem so attractive. But what we've learned now is that, you know, you, you know, apartment rooms are easier to construct. The economics work better than they did before. And the ability to appeal to a broad range of revenue sources from transient right through to long, long stay um, just, just makes it a far more flexible and resilient model. I think it's also a question of land cost in, in Europe compared to the US to, to, um, to put up these structures. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the traditional requirement for, you know, a one bedroom fully partitioned apartment is really not there anymore. So, you know, if you're very clever with your design and you can do it well and beautifully, then you can make apartments work in a smaller footprint than that. Certainly in Europe, not so easy in the US where the expectation for larger spaces is, is very well set. Yeah. Well, I know that the uh, that some of the U.S. brands, when they come to Europe, they adapt the, the I mean, for extended stay, uh, they adopt the product to, to the European market in terms of si size, particularly. We, we've also seen them um, um, adapt their models as well. So um, in terms of shrinking the floor plates of the rooms and making them a bit tighter to make them a bit more successful in 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 european city centers i think uh, it's just worth saying that you know the closer you get to a transient hotel the more you get to a transient hotel right which is probably what, what i don't think anyone wants that and and i have to i have to wonder i'd be interested what you guys think but you have to wonder what the landscape looks like because if you believe that COVID has caused a fundamental change in the dynamics of the industry, then, you know, if you're sitting there with a, a traditional full service, mid scale hotel, perhaps, you know, very focused on, you know, mice or group business, uh, then really, if you're operating that just now, the only way you're going to make any money is if you remove all those ancillary services, including any F&B that's in there, any meeting rooms. And what does that leave you with? I mean, the problem is you're going to have, you know, dozens and dozens of hotels like that trying to compete purely on the basis of their room, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that, I, I think that's the medium term, but longer term, I hope we get back to a, a normal world in which people do want to have shared facilities and so forth. And I, I had one of my first. Uh, mask-to-mask uh, -mask business meetings um, a couple of weeks ago down in London and went to the, the new Sonder in Chelsea um, and they've actually taken over an existing hotel and and tried to fit the extended stay platform on it which as you correctly say Stephen right now for, for the next couple of years probably is going to be a bit of a struggle but I think as we come back into sort of a more sensible environment where we have uh, communal facilities um, I, I can really see that working because if you if you look at something like a Citizen M where you've got really shrunken rooms um, but 
fantastic communal areas and this to an extent is where you you are at with eden as well isn't it because you've got these um r really social spaces um which are very much that in into that whole micro living piece and to your point about blending asset classes it's sort of student accommodation micro living extended stay and short stay all coming together as one and you can tap into any of those markets can't you with 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 eden as, as it as it's set up yeah i mean a, lo a lot of it depends on the on the nature of demand so in very depressed times you cast your net far more widely than you might ordinarily do co-living is a good example there's a very in my opinion a very low price ceiling on, on co-living um the room size to make the economics work is extremely compressed and and, and it only attracts certain segment of the population who are quite value conscious so it you know if you have to fill your your beautiful new design-led apartheid with that kind of a business then it's not gonna it's not gonna fare particularly well over the long term <laughs> but but you know you know a crisis forces necessity and it's working really well for us just now i, I think the sonder model is an, an interest in fact it's such an interesting model that we've poached their um the head of their european business is now um, md for seiko and we'll be trans transforming <laughs> that brand so he's with us now but you know the the um the flexibility of the sonder model is really what serves them well and they're not particularly picky over the sorts of assets that they look at um i mean lock is slightly more specialized for us but it's a bigger ticket value and you know more of a gateway city place so it's more of a um a western european sort of distribution um scenario than 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 a kind of seiko or sonder play which is very market dense so in your hunt for opportunities then conversion's going to be a bit trickier is that, is that is that what i'm hearing it's harder for lock because the the it's a relatively hard brand and the design you know requires a certain type of building and if you take an existing transient hotel and convert it to lock in most cases unless the rooms are quite large and you have to knock rooms through and that usually is bad news for the economics of the deal but um, I mean, we, we are, we're sort of, we're, we're keeping, um, we're casting as broad uh, a net as possible over, over all those types. I mean, r right now, as I say, the distressed assets haven't arrived. So we're looking at um, assets in the way that we did before. And to your point, largely either, you know, ground up development or, or conversion. Um, I think the, the, the real pot of gold for anyone is if they can work out what to do with you know, the distress to tell assets that we all expect to come to the market. Because, you know, to your point, Andrew, in the long term, we expect, we hope things will get back to normal. But, you know, given the way things are unraveling, the long term is quite long <laughs> if you are, you know, at or below break even in your operations. And, it, it, you know, it's really a question of how long people can hold on yeah and and who's going to be there to, to to fill in the the gaps in the balance sheets at the end of the end of this period so that's, that's the big challenge isn't it how every how everything gets restructured um, so Stephen, i'd be interested to know what what type of assets are you looking at in terms of of, of let's say micro or let's say location in terms of uh secondary city still big capitals uh europe uh, sort of yeah, I, I mean, so the so UK is obviously our, our largest market, will remain so for a while. We see space for, you know, lock in, a little bit more space for lock in London. Um, 
I, I, when you go into Western Europe, you know, Germany, you won't be surprised to hear major market for us. There are at least five or six cities in Germany. We would see a lock-in um, and then we're a bit more selective on the other markets. So, you know, Lisbon, Porto, Madrid, Barcelona, there's kind of two or three cities in each of those, you know, larger countries where we could see a lock. For Seiko, uh, the opportunity really is is multiples of that and, and often in secondary cities largely because of the nature of the product it's a lower lower price, price point, point. Is it? and uh, yeah pro- yeah low, lower price point but um um you know easier build costs and a more accommodating brand so you know lock has fully activated animated common spaces you know um we have restaurants we have cocktail bars wellness co-working Seiko is pure play service department and and a very lean efficient uh, operating model so it's much easier to make markets with lower rev powers work. I think this is a good point just to ask the perhaps final question Stephen Um, in terms of your ambition how far and how fast do you think you can grow the business so if I were to ask you in five years time and you know how big do you reckon you're going to be in terms of what sort of a business are you going to be looking at what's the potential you have? (laughs) <laughs> well, um, without giving away the investment objectives, um, uh, in case anyone from Brookfield's listening, um, <laughs> I, I think I, th- I think I, I don't really see material limits on how quickly we can grow. There's questions around the debt market just now, right? And I, I don't think anyone can really answer those satisfactorily. We, you just need to do some deals. There's questions about valuation. Obviously, there's not really any precedent in the market, so it's hard to find a benchmark. Um, you, you, the travel right now is a big restriction, so we're opening two uh, locks in Dublin, two in Munich next year. Both of those countries are currently quite difficult for any of us to travel to, so you need to be creative in the way that you support those openings. But uh, honestly, uh, I, I don't really see a practical limit. Our ambitions, you won't be surprised to hear, are sky high. Um, it, it, but, I, but my sense is it's ours to lose here. And, you know, um, it makes me feel sad to see the impact in the industry. Many colleagues um, and many operating models that I've long admired, you know, either without work or in desperate financial straits. But, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where, you know, we can at least, you know, um, take advantage of what has been an unpleasant situation for everybody so look we're super optimistic but uh, you said it earlier on um uh, andrew it's q q4 q1 um and by that point the picture will get a lot clearer so you should ask me again then and we'll see whether i was unduly bullish i'll book you in for then Stephen. thank you and with that thank you very much and we'll say bye for now